0: Sermon this morning comes from the book of Philippians, chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. And so I invite you, if you have your Bibles, to turn there this morning, and as we follow along, and it is our custom to work verse by verse through the text as we see what God has for us this morning. We want God to speak to us, apply his truth to our lives. And so I invite you to turn there. Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word that we can come now and set our hearts upon and we once again ask for you to speak to us and that your word would go forth and do a mighty work in us. And I'm convinced as I have studied this passage this week that there is so much room in my heart to grow and I trust I have a brother or sister here who needs to grow, who needs to leave this room different than from when they entered. And so we are asking you to do a mighty work in us. We are begging you, Father, for our good and for your great glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. John Bunyan was a 17th century Baptist preacher who by the age of 30 had been married for 10 years when his wife died in 1658, leaving him with four children under the age of 10, the oldest being blind. A year later, Bunyan would marry a wonderful and remarkable woman named Elizabeth, and Elizabeth would go on to care for these four children living in poverty by herself for the next 12 years. You see, Bunyan's preaching had become so popular and so powerful that the Church of England decided that he must be silenced. And so they imprisoned him. There, they locked him up for 12 years in order to keep him from preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, what's amazing about Bunyan's imprisonment is that at any time during those 12 years, he could have simply walked out of prison and gone home. He, if you will, held the key to his freedom. All he had to do was to promise to stop preaching the gospel. Go home, John. Take care of your young wife and your four children who are living in poverty. Just close your mouth. Stop teaching about Jesus. John, well, it's interesting when you think about it, isn't it? And before we think about what he decided to do, I wonder, what would you do? If that was you, if you were, had that choice, what decision would you make? I, I don't think it's, there's a clear decision here. I don't think he would have sinned if he went home to be with his family. If he said, listen, I, I, have, I have my wife, my child's blind, they're having difficulty feeding themselves, I'm just going to shut my mouth and go home. But he chose not to. In fact, Bunyan would say, I can make you this promise, if I am free today, I will preach tomorrow. But it was not an easy decision for him. I don't want you to think that this man had no care for his family, was not burdened by their plight. In fact, he was terribly troubled by it, and he wrote about his wife and his children who would leave him. They would come and visit him occasionally when they were allowed in prison, and then they would leave. And he wrote, The parting of my wife and poor children hath often been to me in the place as the pulling of flesh from my bones. I am often brought... To mind the many hardships, miseries, and wants that my poor family was to meet that I am taken from them, especially my poor blind child. Oh, the thoughts of the hardship I thought my blind one might go under would break me into pieces. He was actually somewhat fearful that the the burden that he was, if you will, laying upon his young wife to care as a stepmother for these four children would turn her against him or perhaps even against God that it would be too great of a weight for her to carry. And he would write to her, let me beg of thee that thou wilt not be offended either with God or men if the cross is laid heavy upon thee not with God, for He doth nothing without a cause, nor with men, for they are servants of God to thee for good. Take therefore what comes from God by them, thankfully. not that interesting? Endure this hardship, this suffering, thankfully. Endure it, if you will, with joy very much reminds me of what our brother Paul wrote here in verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And so what has happened to Paul? What is he referring to? Well, we've already mentioned in our study of the book of Philippians that he, like John Bunyan, has been imprisoned for preaching the gospel. He was going to mention his imprisonment here in verse 13, as you see he uses that phrase, and again in verse 14, he's already referred to it in verse 7, that he is in prison. It's actually an incredible story. I would encourage you perhaps this week to, to read it. It goes from Acts 21 through Acts 28, and it's, it's highly entertaining as well as very convicting and motivating and, and incredible. In fact, if you want to, you can look at Acts 21 to see how it all started when Paul has headed back to Jerusalem. You see, Paul had gone to all of the churches in which he had planted and collected up an offering for the the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem who were suffering through famine. And he went to all these Gentile churches and said, you ought to support your Jewish brothers in in Christ who don't have food. And so he took up all these offerings. An offering, by the way, that the Philippians begged him to be part of, even though they were in great poverty. And in Acts 21, Paul is on his way to Jerusalem. And in verse 10, it says, while we were staying many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said... Uh, And said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hand of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, Why are you, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am not. Only ready to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. And there, just as the prophet said, he went down to Jerusalem and almost immediately was attacked by a mob, which almost killed him. And, and the only people that saved him, interestingly enough, were the Roman soldiers. But they weren't quite his friends because they lynched him soon after that. And he would be tried three times before three different individuals, including King Agrippa himself. And yet no one would rule on his hearing. And there he would sit in Caesarea in prison for two years. And Paul said, finally fed up. He says, okay, well, I'm a Roman citizen. I'm going to appeal to Caesar that Caesar will render a verdict for me. And so off they shipped Paul on this boat. And there was a great storm at, uh, at sea and the boat sank. But Paul had a revelation that they would all survive. And they all swam to this island of Malta. And there they wintered on Malta. And Paul got struck by a venomous snake. And yet he was miraculously healed and and because of that all the people on Malta where this man just swam up onto their shore wanted to know about Jesus and so he was able to spread the gospel there on Malta and eventually he would make it to Rome and there be imprisoned now for perhaps two more years and it is from that prison that he writes this letter as he awaits this verdict from Caesar and it's amazing to me in light of all that because the letter overflows with joy with contentment and confidence. It, he's clearly writing to them because they're concerned for him. In fact, look in verse 12. He says, I want you to know, brothers, what, what has happened to me. Right, they want to know. They're interested. They, they want to know, is he doing okay? And he said, I want you to know how I'm doing. They're, they're, they're undoubtedly, this church that loved him so much is distressed about what they've heard about Paul. If you heard of a, a dear loved one who was in trouble or hardship, you would be distressed, wouldn't you? And you want to know about them. And you would want to know, is, is, he, is he cold or comfortable? Is he, is he sick or well? Is he being well treated? Are they beating him? How is he surviving? What's going on with him? And Paul knows this. He clearly wants to alleviate their concern for them and and he says, I want you to, to know about how I'm doing. But the interesting thing is he doesn't even talk about how he's doing. He just says, I just want to talk about Jesus. All he does is talk about Jesus. He doesn't even really refer to himself. He says, I want you to know what? That the God, what's happened to me has served to advance the, the gospel. And he wants to know that, how encouraged he is about how the gospel is going. It's a crazy letter. It's almost like a letter you get from your kid from camp. Right? Prison is great. Wish you were here. <laughs> I mean, it's amazing. It's extraordinary. And yet, I don't think he's minimizing his trouble. I don't want you to understand that. Prison is not great, it is not easy. Life is not trouble free. Paul does not love prison, he does not love the threat of execution. I, I am confident that there were times when there was. Tears shed by this man as he was unsure as what his future held. See, Christianity doesn't minimize hardship. I want to make sure we get that. When we study this text on hardship, Christianity does not say in the midst of trouble, you just plaster a smile on your face and you grin and bear it. Don't you know better? You're supposed to be happy. That's not what's going on here. What Christianity does, it is puts your hardship in perspective. Christianity teaches you that trouble-free living is no longer your chief priority. That health and wealth and security and a certain future is no longer our greatest ambition. That what we rather long for, or at least ought to long for, more than anything in this world, is the fame of Jesus. This is why he says, I want you to know that what's happened to me, my imprisonment has really served to advance the gospel. Because that's what I'm living for. That's my ambition in life, is to advance the gospel. So don't worry about me. The gospel is advancing. And he uses this term that is often used of an army pushing forward to take new territory. The reality is is, is that his imprisonment hasn't hindered his work. To advance the kingdom of God is actually only served to to move it forward, as he reminds us here in verse 12. And, And don't think that this is some morning after political speech where you're trying to take some defeat and make it sound like victory. No, this is what he really lives for. He lives for the gospel, for the fame of Jesus Christ. He would say to the Ephesian elders... I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course in the ministry which I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. Or to the Corinthians, he said, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. And a little bit later, he says, I do all things for the sake of the gospel. And he encouraged Timothy in his last letter he would wrote uh, right before he was executed, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead according to my gospel for which I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal. But the word of God is not imprisoned. For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. You see, everything in his life is subjugated to this one great and abiding desire. It is the fame of Jesus. It is the progress of the kingdom of God. And therefore, far from lamenting and complaining and resenting and whining about his hardship, he rather concludes he is willing to suffer such costs if it means that Jesus advances. And so this is no self-pity party for Paul, the prisoner, but rather he declares to us, my life is not about me. I am Jesus's disciple. I am at his disposal. I go where he sends me. I do what he tells me, even if it means four years in prison. That's where I'll go because I live for Christ. That's what he's saying here. I'm in prison, but the gospel's going forward. And when I think about that, I'm immediately confronted with my own life. In fact, the the staff this week studied this passage, and the the elders, as we met on Thursday, we studied this passage, and we wondered, can, can we say the same? Can we say the same thing? That I live for the gospel and so come ease or hardship. That's okay. That's not what I'm living for. And we see his heart and see his sacrifice. I wonder what he would do to the average say about the average American church. I wonder if he walked into our auditorium today and spent some time with us what he would say about us. I wonder what he thinks about This form of Christianity that treats Jesus more as a respected teacher who gives advice on your life so you can have ease and comfort rather than a sovereign Lord who demands you to bow your knee to him in everything. I wonder what this man who loves the gospel, even at great personal cost, would think of my life and our life, maybe the Philippians' life. They're going through something similar. You know, verse 28, he says to them, And not be frightened by anything in your opponents. They too are, have opponents. They too are undergoing hardship and difficulty. And so he's writing this letter to certainly to encourage them. But he, more, wa- more than encouraging them, he wants to challenge them, doesn't he? He, he wants them to consider how, how they should evaluate their life, what they live for. And I think that's the the question that I hope that flies over the rest of our time this morning is, is, Christian, what do you live for? As we see what this man lives for, still in prison, still chained, with a certain uncertain future, he says, I want you to know that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Now, a statement like that demands some explanation. And so he's going to explain what he means. He's going to tell us three fronts in which the gospel is advancing. Three ways in which he sees it moving forward in the middle of his situation. The first we see is that the gospel advances through difficult circumstances as he explains in verse 13 saying... So that what is, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And so once again, he refers to his imprisonment. Maybe your translation says chains there, not imprisonment. That's probably a more literal, uh, translation. Um, it's actually the word chains that, that Paul is not locked in a jail like he was in Philippi. He's probably more akin to a house arrest. And there he is locked in a, a residence that he probably has to pay for. It would probably be a private residence. And he is free to receive visitors and become informed as to what's going on around the world. But the whole time in which he's imprisoned, he has a chain attached to his wrist. And on the other end, probably about 18 inches from what we understand, this chain will be attached to a guard's wrist. This chain would never be removed the entire time the person was in custody. Therefore, for perhaps four years, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, Paul not only was limited in his freedom, but limited in his privacy. He, he had no privacy. As he was chained to these guards. We see that at the end of Acts and Caesarea, and we trust that's what's going on with him in Rome. In fact, it's just not any guards. You notice he says here in verse 13 that it is the imperial guard, or maybe your translation says the praetorium. These would be a special class of guards. They'd be 9,000 hand-picked soldiers who Caesar Augustus, who was reigning at the time of the birth of Jesus, uh, began this service. They served, if you will, as the, as the king or the Caesar's personal bodyguards. They were, we see double pay and, and incredible pensions for retirement. In fact, many of them would actually retire in Philippi. Interestingly enough, and they would guard uh, guard Caesar. They would rise to prominence in a hundred years from now. From this point, would actually become known as the kingmakers. And here, Paul is is chained to them. This this imperial guard. They not only served as the Caesar's bodyguards, but they also guarded any imperial prisoners. And, and so we see this man, um, perhaps. Chained to these guards. And, and how many must have been chained to him? Dozens, scores, maybe hundreds over the years. All chained to Paul. Which I think raises the question. Who's really the captive here? <laughs> because if you're going to be chained to Paul. Guess what you're going to hear about. Right? Well Jesus. right? Uh, I mean he literally has a captive audience. 24 hours a day. As they are locked up next to him. And so I... Trust that our brother in Christ, when they sat next to him, he began to speak to them about Jesus. In fact, he says as much in verse 13, doesn't he? It has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest, what? That my imprisonment is for Christ. And he's talking to them about Christ. And he would tell them about this man who lived perfectly without sin, who was the son of God, and he was killed. He was crucified under the Roman ruler Pilate, and the Roman soldiers nailed him to a cross But three days later he rose from the dead and whoever would bow their knee to this man who now reigns as King of Kings and Lord of Lords will receive forgiveness of sins and eternal life. In fact, one day he's returning to judge all of creation and he would proclaim this to the guards. But not only would he say this with his words, can you imagine just the character witness that Paul must have had as he exhibit joy in his hardship and patience in his suffering, as he showed them wisdom and humility. In fact, as he loved his captors. How many prisoners would they have who actually loved them? And as God, Jesus says that we are to love our enemies. And I trust Paul exhumed this love for those who were chained to them. And you could imagine how this wonderful, incredible message uh, uh, coupled with this incredible character must have impacted these hearted soldiers. And the stories of this prisoner must have begun to circulate amongst their ranks. He says all the Imperial Guard has come to know this. In fact, I appreciate What F.B. Meyer says, the great commentator, when he imagines what this must have been like, saying, At times the room would be thronged with people to whom the apostles spoke the words of life. And after they withdrew, the sentry would sit beside him, filled with many questions as to the meaning of the words which this strange prisoner spoke. And other times, when all had gone, especially at night, soldier and apostle would be left to talk in those dark, lonely hours. The Apostle will tell the soldier after soldier the story of his own proud career in his early life, of his opposition to Christ and his ultimate conversion, and will make it clear that he was there as a prisoner not for any crime, but because he believed that he whom the Roman soldiers had crucified was the Son of God and the Savior of men. Meyer goes on and says, As these tidings spread and soldiers talked them over with one another, the whole guard will become influenced by this meek and gentle apostle. I trust that many of these guards came to Christ through this witness. seems that what Paul's implying here, that that they've come to know why he's here. I think some of those guards who who, uh, gave their life to Christ would go on and become evangelists. I believe that because if you look at the end of the book of Philippians in chapter 4, Paul in his farewell has a very interesting uh, uh, verse here in verse 22 when he says... All the saints greet you. Then you notice he says, especially those of Caesar's household. Caesar's family. He's telling the Philippians, hey, by the way, Caesar has nephews and nieces or perhaps children who now belong to Jesus. They are saints as well. And you think, well, how do they hear unless it was these bodyguards who would take the gospel into the very halls of the eternal city there in Rome and proclaim Jesus Christ. And you think that these chains on Paul's wrist had opened up for him doors to the fame of Jesus that would have never been possible if he we're a free man. And so the gospel advanced through hardship. It often does. In fact, I I appreciate the story of John Bunyan so much. As I mentioned, he was in prison to be silenced, but he refused to stop preaching. He would actually preach every day in the jail courtyard, and all the prisoners, he would have this massive audience of prisoners that would come to hear him, but word spread, and it was just not the prisoners, but there would be hundreds of people every day that would flock to the prison and stand outside its walls to hear this man proclaim the work of Jesus Christ, and the authorities got so annoyed with him and his gospel influence that they threw him in the inner prison so that he could not preach with any, to anyone anymore. And all that did was close Bunyan's mouth and enabled him to pick up a pen for which he wrote the great allegory Pilgrim's Progress which has been translated in over 200 languages and was the best-selling book for 250 years other than the Bible. And his impact has impacted millions of people crying hundreds of years you see God works through hardship he advances the gospel perhaps even because of hardship And, and, and let's be clear here hardships not good suffering is not good do not misunderstand me you and I should work to alleviate suffering Christ has He came to this earth and he alleviated suffering. We're going to a land one day in which there will be no more suffering. But I want you to understand that suffering is no obstacle to the advance of the kingdom of God. It is no obstacle to the fame of Jesus Christ. In fact, it seems that God is very pleased throughout scripture and throughout history to use hardship to even bring it forward. Which I think raises the question for you and I now, doesn't it? is why has God put you where you are? There may be some here this morning who spend the majority of their time in a place they rather not be. And you may feel this morning that you are chained to a difficult job or an angry boss or a dysfunctional family Maybe some who will listen to this message even find themselves chained to a hospital bed. My question for you is Have you considered why God has put you there? Have you considered that you are there not primarily for your own comfort, ease, and personal satisfaction, but that God has put you there so you can follow Jesus in the midst of that hardship? So that you can advance the gospel. In fact, I would suggest to you, the the tighter your chains, the more difficult your hardship, the greater your gospel witness shines. And I I know when when pastors say things like this, or you hear people teach things like this, the the objection is, doesn't God want me to be happy? Doesn't God want me to be happy? And I don't think the answer to that question is as easy as you might think it is. I wonder what Paul, I think Paul would have been happy to be let out of prison. I think he would have been happy not to have walked into Philippi and had his backs lacerated by a flogging and then thrown in prison. I think God is after perhaps something more than your happiness. I think, to be honest, he's after his kingdom. I think he's after the advance of the gospel, the spread of the fame of Jesus Christ. And when you give yourself to that cause, happiness follows. Joy Follows. In fact, when, when the apostles asked Jesus to teach us how to pray, how did he teach us? He said, when you pray, pray like this, Father, hallowed be your name. Not, Father, give me ease and comfort and a certain future and a trouble-free life. He said, no, when you pray, pray for the fame of the name of God. And when you're done praying for that, pray that His kingdom would come and advance to places like the Imperial Guard and prisons in Philippi and difficult workplaces and dysfunctional families. And when you're done praying for that, then you pray that His will will be done in your life and in other people's life, that you walk in obedience in the midst of the life that He has chosen. For you, and it's only after that that he says, Okay, now pray for your food and pray for shelter, and that he would supply all of your needs. It seems that God's priorities are often different than our own priorities. It seems that Paul understood this. That that fact he found living this way actually brought him joy and happiness. He found a great liberation when he stopped treasuring his own comfort above all else. He was captured by a new joy and a new purpose worth suffering and dying for. But you want to live for something bigger than your happiness. What a silly thing to live for. What a shallow thing to live for. And I do it all the time. He's holding up something better. Someone better than you and me. He says, live for me. And if you do, I have made you this way. It's in that you will find happiness. You won't find happiness seeking after things or comfort or ease and pursuing all these things. Once you are freed from that, then you find happiness. I want you to understand that Jesus has come and he has demanded this of us. He has called us to follow him. And so Paul, who's unjustly in prison, does not write a letter of complaint and whining, but a letter of encouragement and joy. He's happy wherever God puts him. If he's serving the gospel, he evaluates everything as to how it works for the gospel. Maybe, by the way, you're not in a difficult place. Maybe you're in the best place you've ever imagined. I, I mean, things are going well for me, so it's really easy for me to talk to you who are in trouble because I'm not facing trouble right now. And there are loads of you who are not facing trouble. But my challenge for you today and for me is that perhaps God would like you to rearrange your life so that you are actually pursuing less of the things that you set out to pursue and more open yourself to gospel ministry. Maybe you should rearrange your life so you could grab someone and begin to disciple them and read scripture with them or start a community group that you could begin to do a gospel work. Maybe, maybe someone here needs to, to quit their job and to take the gospel to a place where they don't know the name of Jesus and, and live there and live for Christ at great personal cost to you. I, I think God wants us to live for Him. For the progress of the gospel, and we see this taking place through Paul winning these converts outside the church. But interestingly enough, he's actually strengthening the believers in the church. As we see, secondly, the gospel advance through go- uh, Godly example. Look at verse 14. It says, "And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear." And so there was evidently these previously timid believers who had their mouths closed. And, and and they know that that God has put Paul in prison there for the defense of the gospel, and they're thinking, well, how can we be quiet if if this man is imprisoned for Jesus? Which, and so they begin to speak the word without fear, with boldness, which is kind of the exact opposite as to what we expect, because if a government is going to punish a criminal, one of the reasons they do this is to deter people from committing the same crime. And so you look at this crime and you see the punishment in which he is received, and you think, well, I better, I better settle down. I don't want that to happen to me. And this is exactly what the punishment's supposed to do. And so we expect these Roman Christians, to see Paul's suffering and his struggle and say, so We we better keep a low profile. Right? We better be quiet. We better take this underground and wait till things calm down. But the exact opposite happens. They see Paul in change and it makes them all the more eager to commit the same crime, to preach the gospel. We're gonna do it. And they see this example and they're just incredibly emboldened and enlivened. He could do it, I could do it, and you could do it, and we could live for Jesus. And it just energizes the church, which just makes me so excited because I see how stupid the devil is when he comes at us and tries to make us suffer and he's going to beat back Christians and he's this roaring lion and he thinks he's going to destroy the church and all he does is to serve to get us fired up and we're just going to go and take the gospel, come what may come. We trust God and we live for Christ. Christ, You see, it's not going to stop. He's going to build his church. And he uses these godly examples to send us forward and to invigorate us. In fact, you notice there's just not a handful of Christians doing this. Verse 14, and most of the brothers, he says, most of the brothers. You think the gospel is impacting Rome just to a far greater degree than if Paul was free and preaching by himself. He has all these preachers now enlivened through this witness. This is how God has done this throughout... The, the history of his church some of you of course uh, know the story of of those uh, five uh, young Wheaton college graduates who wanted to take the gospel to the aqua Indians and and they flew their plane in there those five young men and they were all that fateful day they were all struck down and killed by these Indians because they didn't want the gospel and you think that would tamper down any missionary zeal and it had the exact opposite For the next two decades, more and more people were offering themselves to missionary service because they were encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly because of this example. And so Paul, this this verse, verse 14, is very important for us because we're tempted to read this passage and say, well, of course Paul's all pumped up. That's Paul, right? Paul doesn't care about himself. He likes prison. (laughs) And we think that Paul's some like Christian Jedi knight that that right he just he just he's not affected by anything. he's like he's, like, he's rambo for Jesus and he's just going to take on the whole army himself and we think, well we're just toss this aside it doesn't really apply to me that's paul and pauls paul, that's who, that's who Paul is, but he doesn't let us do that because he tells us in verse 14 listen it's just not about me it's about everybody else. they are all preaching the gospel and he wants to encourage them the Philippians to to risk their reputation and their wealth and their safety for the cause of Christ. He wants to be an example to you and I, who were tempted to play it safe with our co-workers and our neighbors. Not want to rock the boat too much, not want to get too crazy and zealous. And I think Paul would, would motivate us otherwise. See, God seems to use these examples to bring forth the gospel, and, and many are emboldened to proclaim Christ. But interestingly enough, not all spoke about Jesus out of a love for Jesus. As we see the third front in which the gospel advances, we see that the gospel advances through sinful motives. Note verse 15. He says, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. And so we have this third surprise here, that there are two groups of preachers. The first group, if you will, are preaching Christ out of goodwill. They love Paul. They love Jesus. He elaborates in verse 16, explaining them, saying, The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. They love Paul. They trust that what's happened to him is because he's defended the gospel, and they're going to go preach out of that love, out of that goodwill. But there's another group, isn't there? And we see them in verse 15, and they seem to hate Paul, don't they? Verse 15 says, They preach Christ from envy and rivalry. In verse 17, he elaborates, saying, The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. And so they have envy of Paul and rivalry of Paul, and they want to make... Paul's chains chafe a little bit more. They want to rub Saul into Paul's wounds. These are sick, self-promoters. They are petty, and they're going to preach in order to gain something for themselves. And it may just be prestige over the great apostle Paul. And we're not sure what their motive is, but I think it's probably easy to speculate. I'm sure some thought, as they considered uh, uh, Paul, that, that Paul's always just running in headfirst into these hostile situations. Now, Paul sees a city, and what does he do? He just walks into the market street and starts screaming about Jesus, and he gets the whole city in an uproar, and he gets flogged and beaten and imprisoned and, and, and arrested. But, but but that just doesn't happen to you, Paul. You bring trouble on us all. Why are you such a rabble-raiser? Why, why are you causing us so much trouble? And they, they think, well, there's got to be a wiser way, doesn't there, Paul? Can't we be a little more discreet, a little, little more discerning? As to how we might spread the kingdom of God And so perhaps they they thought this about Paul Or perhaps they explained that that God's favor is no longer upon Paul I mean obviously God has Paul in prison for these past four years God must have lifted his hand from him After all, he was in prison in Philippi And God wouldn't even let him stay in that prison until morning He freed him before the sun rose And now for four years he's been in prison He's probably has some secret sin, don't you think? And, and some flaw that no one knows about, but God knows about it. That's why God is restricting Paul. And after all, we're free to proclaim the gospel. And Paul must be some, some reprobate or some, some terrible sin that God is, is uh, uh, confining him to prison. Or maybe they thought, you know, it's time for a fresher way. Right, all this preaching, the Bible stuff, and going verse by verse, and telling people, but you know, we need a fog machine and some peppermint lattes and a good parking lot, and you know, we, you know, people, we need to make it relevant, right? We need to be exciting. We need to pump this thing up, and you know, Paul's just the old fogey guy who just wants to preach the Bible and preach the Bible, and we, don't, this just, we need something new, and you can see how they must have been saying these things about Paul, and of course, this must have hurt Paul deeply, and and uh, he had feelings, and it must have been t- terribly troubling for them as they accused Paul of folly and sin. But amazing nevertheless, they get around to preaching Jesus. I mean, they're not heretics. Right? He says there in verse 15, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry. And again, verse 17, the former proclaim Christ. They are preaching Jesus. If they were preaching another gospel, Paul would have exposed them. As he did time and again in his letters. He has no patience for those who peddle a perverted Jesus. He has no patience for... For those who do so in our day, I trust those who knock upon our doors with a pseudo gospel and a, and a a humanized Jesus. And Paul, I think would have told them as he did those like him, that they are Satan's servants. They are defiled and damned as he would write. He says here in verse 17, no, these aren't false. They are not preaching a false gospel. They proclaim Christ, though they preach more from envy than they do from love. And so what does Paul think about these guys? What does he think about that? He's not going to play their game, is he? He, In fact, he applauds their efforts. Look at verse 18. What then? What do you think I think about this, guys? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. Once again, we are surprised by this man. And I think perhaps a little bit convicted. Because you know that twinge of envy that you feel sometimes, don't you, when someone's someone is applauded for their work and you're kind of overlooked. Someone gets promoted and no one notices all your hard work. And and you feel that in your heart. And maybe you feel even more when you think that the reason that they're getting applauded is nothing less than this naked ambition for people to see them. And you know what they're really like. And we know what that struggle's like, but it seems that Paul doesn't care who gets the credit. I, I trust he's no doubt hurt by them. He has feelings, but his reputation matters little when it comes to the fame of Jesus Christ. The, the progress of the gospel was Paul's passion. Therefore, take his freedom or make his future uncertain or defame his reputation, and he will respond, What then? Only in this, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. He rejoices in the fame of Jesus. Now we should be clear here. That sin, that these men are preaching from sin. They're preaching Christ, but out of sinful motives. And that sin, like suffering, is not good. But God will not even be defeated by sin. He will actually use sin to bring about His kingdom. And so Paul Paul recognizes this. They're proclaiming Jesus. He rejoiced. Remember back in verse 4 that the Philippians helped him proclaim Jesus. And now he's rejoicing that these rivals are proclaiming the gospel. You see, at the end of the day, all these men who were preaching Jesus, all they did was fill Paul with joy. You may talk all you want about me, just be sure to mention Jesus. See, life was not about Paul, it wasn't about him. How many of us struggle with that? What's life about for you? There's a lie that's been going around from the beginning of humanity. It started in a place called the Garden of Eden when a talking snake came and spoke to Adam and Eve and said, Listen, guys, God, God, God doesn't want what's best for you. And I'm here to be your benefactor and just open your eyes a little bit. God, God wants you to live for Him, He doesn't want you to live for yourselves. So if you're gonna pursue happiness in your life, you need to get out from under that yoke. You need to take a step out from under his rule and begin to seek your own. You need to get your own because he's certainly not going to give it to you. And so many people have bought into that lie and we've been living that way for millennia. Life is about me, we think. And I just want to, I just want to say to you, I just want to confront that this morning. It's not about you. Your life is not about you. God did not make you for you. He made you for Him. And if you understand that, then you will find joy and delight in which you are seeking. If you think that life is about me, and not only will it lead to misery, it will it will lead to sin. In fact, there's no sin in which you won't be willing to commit. If you are committed to the, your self-exaltation, seeking your own, you will cheat on your spouses and lie on your taxes, and we will abort our babies, and we will steal from our workplace, and we will yell at our kids because they don't give us what we deserve, and we will rage at the driver in front of us because they are an inconvenience, and we will manipulate our friends and our girlfriends and our boyfriends in order to satisfy our needs and we will do all sorts of terrible evil things in the name of seeking after my own self, my own happiness and we will wake up tomorrow and we will do it again and again and again and it will only grow deeper and deeper and never satisfy us because we are not made that way. God has made us and he has made us to find our delight in him. Just as Mark read for us, the great quote from from Augustine, that, that our hearts, are restless and they, until they find their rest in God, in you, God. And I'm telling you, as a Christian, you are you are called to give Him everything, to follow Him. Jesus does not call you into discipleship. So many times we we, we say the gospel is this, you you know, Jesus is going to come and He's going to, to just add Jesus to your life, continue to live the life that you have, and just bring Jesus into that life, and He's going to follow you along throughout your days. And I'm telling you, that's not the gospel. The gospel is... you. Don't don't add Jesus to your life. You turn from your life and you turn to Christ, bowing your knee as the sovereign Lord of the universe. You follow him. And maybe you're here this morning and, and you're not a Christian. And, and I, I, I offer you this morning, based upon the authority of God's word, eternal life. I offer you a life that will never end. I offer you forgiveness of all your sin through the blood of Jesus Christ. That if you would repent and place your faith in Jesus, you will live forever. But I want you to understand something. You who do not trust Christ today, in order to receive that eternal life, your life must radically change you don't get to just keep living and add eternal life on the top of it you must turn from your life and turn to christ you must follow him you don't get to continue to pursue your own self-exaltation your own ambitions with jesus coming along i want you to be fully aware of what the gospel is It is a surrender to Jesus and you begin to live for his fame and his ambition, which will lead to greater joy than you ever known. Which of course confronts us Christians, doesn't it, as we think, what are we living for? What are my aspirations and my goals and what am I doing with my money and my marriage and do I live for a nice house or to retire early or to see my grandchildren grow up. And none of those things are wrong or bad. Please don't mishear me. But when you begin to live for those things and they choke out the best thing, the most important thing, the fame of Jesus, you know what's going to happen. Your joy is going to fluctuate and wither based upon your circumstances. And when the bank account is full and the the marriage is happy and the the health is good and you're appreciated, you're just going to be full with joy in your heart and a smile on your your face, but when a cold comes, or cancer comes, or persecution, or poverty comes, all that joy and contentment is dislodged from you. And so many people live their life like that, and it is not the Christian life. It is not what we're called to live. We are called to look at Paul's example, for instance, and see how evaluate all things as to how it how it serves what's most important to me, and that's the fame of Jesus Christ. And I want you to understand, Paul's not a Stoic. He's not some this emotional detachment. It's actually the opposite. He's actually found something worth living for. He's found something worth suffering for and worth giving up everything for. Something even worth dying for. He has found something better than himself. And when you live for Christ, you will find freedom from laboring to be appreciated and to be comfortable and to be secure. And we all have to fight. There's this huge area for me to grow in this. And there is, I trust for some here, but I, I trust God's word that there is joy found in the fact that we are made for Him. And that, that once we tap into that, that, that wellspring will never run die, dry. We, we sang this song. I wrote it down this morning. Take my life. You are all I live for. There was a, a bit of conflict in my heart when I sang that. You are all I live for. Was that true? Well, what do you live for? What brings you joy? What a wonderful conversation you could have over lunch today. So what do you live for? What a wonderful conversation to grab a brother and sister in Christ and say, let's just talk about this. Let's just not hear God's word and go on our merry way. Let's think about it and apply it to our life. Where is my joy coming from? What am I living for? We see, I think Paul gives us a great example and a great encouragement. Of course, all this this false preaching here, or not the false preaching, but these false preachers, if you will, as we end our time this morning, none of it excuses their hypocrisy. It has repelled so many from the church, even today. These false preachers, these people that preach from false motives. But what's amazing, what we ought to see is that God can use even those who preach with no sincerity in their heart for the advance of the gospel that he could use money-grubbing televangelists and sophisticated, unbelieving preachers to actually spread the fame of Jesus, just as God can use chained prisoners and newly inspired preachers to build his kingdom. And, and what this text does, in addition to conflicting, uh, um, challenging me, it actually reminds me that the gospel rarely advances in the ways you and I expect it to advance. It, it, it uh, it's rarely advances because we have economic power Or political influence... I think we need to be aware of that in light of what's going on in our country in these days as I see increasingly uh, the direction of our land is going away from those who claim Christ. And we once rejoiced in what this nation held so dear, freedom of religion, where we can be whatever faith we are and we could be it throughout our life. And that has been redefined as a freedom of worship. It is okay for you to enter into your sacred buildings and worship and practice your religion. But when you get out into the market place. When you get out into your community, you are to leave your religion in that room. You no longer have that freedom. At least it seems to be going that way as we are parodied in entertainment and we are misrepresented by the media and we are shut out by public education and we are mocked by the academy. And I want to stand and fight with you and pray to protect those freedoms. But please do not misunderstand if our country continues to go the way it has been going, it is not a threat to the gospel. It is not a threat to the kingdom of God. He will build His church. And it seems to me, in fact, the Bible seems to teach and history seems to lay out that that when persecution and hardship comes, that the gospel seems to abound even more. Even more in Paul's days and in our day. And so that should remind us, I think, that that God rarely advances his fame through beautiful church buildings and programs designed to attract church shoppers. He rarely uses those things. He, he rarely uses Christian politicians. He rarely uses church basketball leagues and things like that. I'm not saying he doesn't. Don't, hear, don't mishear me. I'm not saying he doesn't. But he seems to be, as I look in this world, more inclined to use the tools from which we would not expect. That God typically works through means the world rejects. After all, this is a God who called a childless family to found a nation. And called a old man to lead a revolution and called a young boy to slay a giant. This is a God who used a carpenter and his boat to save humanity and an imprisoned slave to save his wicked brothers from famine. This is a God who used a marching band to destroy a city. This is a God who used an army of 300 men armed with trumpets and clay pots to destroy an army of 100,000. This is a God who used a beautiful girl to sway the most powerful king in the world. This is a God who used a whining, reluctant prophet to bring about national repentance. This is a God who used a virgin to bring forth his son, who used a boy's lunch to feed 5,000, who called tax collectors to be the Messiah's friends, who changed the world through a group of fishermen and who called a middle-aged academic bigot to be the gospel representation to uneducated Gentiles. And it is a God who used the breach of justice and groveling political maneuvering and a criminal torture of a sinless man to redeem you and I and all who would bow their knee to Him. And I am confident He is a God who will use a group of Americans living in northern Virginia who have renounced their their desire of self-allegiance and have bowed their knee to a king who is called Jesus, the eternal Son of God, who do who, though he was equal to God, did not seek his own comfort and ease and convenience and luxury, but rather laid it all aside and was willing to be nailed to a cross and mocked and beaten in order that he might redeem a people for him himself who will cry out to the world we have been freed from our self-allegiance we have been set free from our prison of self-exaltation and we now live for another we cry out with the saints from old worthy are you the lamb who was slain to receive power and glory and honor forever and ever from us through our hearts we live for christ let us pray God, we want, we want to be used by You and You have so much work to do in our lives. You have so much work to do. In my heart, I am so easily distracted. We are so easily distracted from that which is primary. And we're constantly evaluating our lives in how it blesses me. And I like it if it doesn't, and I don't like it. I, I like it if it does, and I don't like it if it doesn't. And I just pray you would wake us up to the fact that there is another way to live. That we would live for Jesus. Help us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.